Hi there, welcome to The Great Updraft. You're here with Ross. I talk about profound personal development and in today's video, we're going to talk about faith. Particularly, we're going to talk about James Fowler's groundbreaking research into faith called The Stages of Faith. And if you're joining me on YouTube, know that you can also listen to this episode on all the major podcast platforms out there. So, It's really important before we start talking about the stages of faith, the stages that we go through in our faith development or that we can go through that are open to us. I think it's really important we talk about what faith is for James Fowler. Faith isn't just religious faith. And we need to get that clear from the outset. Think of it more as a capacity that we really can't live without. Faith isn't something that we grow out of that we go through as a life experience before realizing the power of rationality and science and the ultimate lifelessness and meaninglessness of everything. So it's not that. It's not like a a phase that we go through. It's not a religious life in which we believe everything the Bible says. It's not just that. It can be that. Faith is not a blanket as though it were just like a safety net against the ultimate meaninglessness of everything and the, the, you know, the mechanistic nature of the universe where, um, you know, everything's made of atoms and we have no control over anything. No, I want you to set those ideas aside and realize that faith is absolutely necessary. And let's, let's listen to James Fowler talking about how, talking about what faith is in a really concise way. Fowler says, quote, Faith is a person's way of leaning into and making sense of life. More verb than noun, faith is a dynamic system of images, values and commitments that guides one's life. It is thus universal. Everyone who chooses to go on living operates by some basic faith. End quote. So one really important thing thing that Fowler brings up is that without faith, life is actually meaningless. And I don't think this is because life is inherently meaningless or meaningful, but basically because as humans, we create and construct much of our meaning. We construct relative meaning and we go through phases in how we construct relative meaning. And that relative meaning is our faith. Well, we can get faith that is based on absolute meaning but that's another topic because this relative meaning is so important to us life does feel meaningless without it so i want you to really ask yourself what what how do you make sense of life what um ideas values and commitments guide your life why do they guide your life and what, why do you keep on living life the way you do? And if you ask these questions really profoundly, you'll come to, in part, what your faith is. And it might have nothing to do with faith in a religious sense. It's just the, as Fowler says, a dynamic system of images, values, and commitments that guide one's life, that guide your life. So even the most hyper-rational people have meaning structures, And I want you to realize this. It's just that their meaning structures are based on hyper-rationality, the physical world, science, mass. Their faith structure and supports all their trust and all their 
love for these subjects and for their their idea of what life is and what the universe is and why we're here based on those subjects. So even if they tell you that life has no meaning, life is just a bunch of atoms in a box, <laughs> um, realize that that is still faith. It's just a bit of a, a faith that says there's no meaning in the world. As I said, I don't think that what Fowler says implies that life has no meaning, that it has no ultimate meaning. What I think it means is that much of human meaning is relative and the journey of discovering, the journey of faith is about going through these different systems of relative meaning until you get to the ultimate meaning of what it is, of what life really is about. And really, the, the these meaning structures, these relative meaning structures are actually sort of relative and they're, they're pure imitations of the ultimate meaning. They're correct within a context, within assumptions, within our psychology at that time of our life, but they actually, in an ultimate sense, they don't point to the actual ultimate nature of things. They're like, they are phases that we go through in our understanding. And later we'll talk about what the ultimate meaning is. Great. So let's talk about seeing your own faith and seeing the faith of others. So a good exercise for you is, this is not intellectual, this is very practical. Try to see others' faith, faith systems. What do they talk about all the time? What, what are they most interested in? What do they like sharing with you? What gets them up in the morning? What do they devote themselves to? What are their systems of meaning? What gives their life meaning to them? And you can also ask these questions of yourself, of course. And I want you to realize how how different your views are from the people around you, how different the answers to these questions are, but also how similar they are too. So our tendency as humans is to focus on differences, not <laughs> on commonalities. Realize both and realize that your faith systems have a lot in common. And you can see these elements when we talk about the stages. I'll also say to always remember that relative meaning is something that you construct. Not in the sense that it's completely false, just that it's not ultimately true. For example, your goals in life, your ideas about right and wrong, your perspectives. Why this is relative is kind of a long topic, but it's basically because Not everyone shares them, and they're very relative to your environment, to your age, to your psychology, to your life experiences, and so on. And they're constructed as a way for you to make sense of things, which is absolutely necessary. But also, remember, it's something that you construct. And ultimately, the meaning of all of life goes way beyond our individual ideas about. And it's not a relative thing that depends on these factors while also realizing that we, we also can't live without those factors. So it's also really important to realize that your mind is always filing and categorizing and presenting to you everything as being a certain way. And this, again, points to your faith system because everything that you experience in life goes through your filter and you your interpretations, you take them to be true and it reinforces those same interpretations. 
And those interpretations are based on your faith system, if you go deep enough into what guides them. And so these, just seeing how you interpret life and how you think about it helps you realize what your faith system is about. And again, this doesn't mean it's false or childish or these interpretations are wrong in some way. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that it doesn't really point to the ultimate nature of life and reality. And if you're interested in what that is, you have to see beyond these things. Great. Let's now talk about the stages of faith. So there are seven stages that Fowler discovered, and these are actually closely linked to cognitive development, moral development, psychosocial development, and if you study any of the other models that I talk about, spiral dynamics, Kurt Greuter's model, Ken Wilber's model, you can see these stages are very well um, reflected in those models. And the the commonalities are quite staggering, actually. Um, not just the overall model, but actually the details of each stage. It's very illuminating. These are age-related, but they're not deterministic. So... I'm going to be telling you what ages you might move into these if you're, you know, in the modern world in the West kind of thing. But this isn't, you know, it's more probabilities more than anything else. And um, certainly if if you're more mature in your faith, shall we say, you'll reach these stages before most of the people in your culture will, which can bring its own issues, as I'll say. Um, if you like... Key ideas to keep in mind as we're talking about these is to realize that the stages represent changes in how we know, value, judge, and commit. So there is really a lot of change going on here. And you'll see that each phase sort of has an optimal time for how we know, value, judge, and commit. And it helps us meet the particular crises and challenges that we face during the life phase that we're going through. What we do have is sort of minimum ages for each transition. So we're not going to say at this age you're going to move into stage three or whatever. We're just going to say that below a certain age, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be there. Doesn't again, it's not it's not deterministic. So another crucial thing to remember, and this is something Fowler says, is that the stages of faith quote exhibit an indisputably normative tendency end quote. What this basically means is that Fowler's highest stage is normative in the sense that it's like an end point or a standard against which we can compare all of the other stages. And the stage six sort of is like an end point of maturation in Fowler's model. So while we're not saying it's better in all situations and we need to all run up to stage six as quickly as possible. If you're into personal development like I am, you might make this mistake. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying that in the most mature expression of faith, we're at stage six. The the And we'll talk about this as we get to stage six. Is likely the like the most likely thing is that you never reach it in your lifetime but you shouldn't think of that as a goal to reach necessarily just think of it as you know um where you naturally develop to throughout life and an earlier stage might be where a person needs to be for their entire life just what they need to live another thing 
each phase brings new capacities which add and add to the previous ones and recontextualize them. So this is really important. I want you to, as we're talking about these stages, one of the things I want you to do is really look for the new capacities that each one brings. And that'll help you understand what it's about and why it comes online and why we need to honor it in ourselves. There's an overall movement from unconscious union in stage zero. Unconscious union, we'll talk about what that means, to individuation, which is stage four. And then we move back, back, quote unquote, to conscious union. So we go from unconscious union to individuation to conscious union. This will make much more sense when we talk about the stages. Another thing, the transitions between these phases or the dominance of each of these phases are often, is often protracted, painful, dislocating, and sometimes abortive. In other words, we never actually make it, quote unquote, to the next stage. It's too much of a jump. It's too, mm, too much change and upheaval required, and it doesn't happen. And finally, before we talk about these stages, I want you to remember to look for yourself in each of these stages. Not only the period of life, the period of your life when you were experiencing this stage most intensely, but also what this phase brings to your life now and how it still is alive and well within you. And I think this really is one of the beautiful um the gifts of learning these models is to see these things in yourself and to see how you've grown and also how your current self is really uh, includes all the previous levels. Great. Let's look at stage zero. Now, Fowler calls it stage zero because it's uh, it's kind of a faithless stage in a, in a certain way. And let's see what this is. This stage Fowler called infancy and undifferentiated faith. So it's not really that relevant to our adult lives necessarily, but it's the foundation for all future development. And understanding this phase helps us to better understand what faith actually is. What are the key features of zero? You'll find these in young infants who are dependent on caregivers. And at this point, children or well, babies, they lack basic mental capacities like the distinction between self and other, the sense of being a centralized self, in other words, that your body's in the middle and the world is around you. The sense of linear time, like now leads to uh, the previous moment, leads to the next moment, and the permanent world of objects. All of these things, which as adults we completely take for granted. And these mental and physical, well, the physical deficiencies, they can't walk, they can't talk, can't feed themselves can't go to the bathroom. These mental and physical deficiencies make the child dependent on others to meet their biological needs. And their core challenge is really to develop a sense of trust towards these caregivers. This comes from psychology, this basic sense of trust. And what actually happens is that the child extends this to life itself. If they don't get adequate care, they're going to have a basic sense of mistrust towards life. If they get adequate care, they're going to have a basic sense of trust towards life, simply because at that time, 
their basic needs are really the most important thing and they generalize that. What's the importance of this phase? The seeds of faith are sown here. And here is when we form our first ideas of God. Ideas is kind of a a difficult word to use here because we don't have mental images at this point. But these are like pre-verbal ideas, pre-verbal concepts. And they might just be feelings or senses that are consistent with how much care they, they receive. And if they don't receive enough care, this sense can be really destroyed for an entire life and it can seriously damage the child's ability to create secure attachments to form relationships with people and so on to trust life to see that um you know the positive side of the ultimate meaning of life and this can affect their entire faith life so it's very important in this phase i'd also say that Isn't it true that when we feel lonely and unhealthy or down or lost as adults, that we can start to question the entire meaning of life? It's sort of like the whole of life seems to take on this nihilistic um, tint. And it just seems like, why am I actually here? And this is kind of like a stage zero mm, holdover. It's like the, the basic trust and mistrust, depending on how, on our care, And our sense of health and well-being as adults can really affect that sense of trust and mistrust or our sense of joy towards life. So let's move on now to stage one where we typically find young young children. This is called intuitive projective. So this is when children learn to walk, to write, to talk and interact with others. They gain some independence and they want to start exploring their world using their radical new capacities, picking things up, saying words, moving around, mm, smelling things, eating things, etc. Some of the key features of this level. Children can now access symbols and language and they, they now use this to name objects as being separate from them. They develop a sense of object permanence. What object permanence means is that when something isn't in your direct experience, you realize it still exists. Like you can't see what's behind you right now, but you know it still exists. You can't see what's under the table, what's under the sofa, but you know it still exists. Child Children actually don't have that until a certain age because it relies on memory, the formation of mental concepts and so on. At this level, they, they have it. And they also have their imagination. So the inner world of thought and imagination now starts to run rampant. And the child can now assimilate concepts from peers, learn from them, um, ask questions even, and add them to their mental store of information. And what basically happens is the child forms of an assortment of images and thoughts relating to the ultimate environment, the ultimate scene of life, the ultimate meaning. But when they they try to create a coherent account of this, they fall short. What happens at level one is that magical thinking dominates. What this means is that the lines between imagination and reality are blurred. So the child has their imagination and they have some sense that life exists apart from them and they're not... um, 
that they have some autonomy, they have some say in what happens, but they've not really understood how cause and effect works yet and how things work in the world and what they're actually able to do and not. What children can do is they can speak fluidly, but they can they they don't use sentences and phrases that la- that have logical structure. So when they start talking about the ultimate meaning of things, they try and understand what the ultimate meaning of life is. They can't really describe it with language. When they try and understand why they're alive and what drives them, it's really just a bunch of episodes, things they've picked up, put together. In a, in a way that doesn't really make any sense. Fowler observed this in his studies. Nevertheless, we should appreciate the capacities that this phase gives us. So among them are the use of language to describe the divine, an ability to capture the ultimate power in stories, and the rich mental life that we have, which helps us relate to the, to the divine, to the ultimate meaning of things. I actually think this comes because basically the child has this a new sense of um, independence, of agency, but they've not had this for long enough to realize their own limitations. And they also don't feel, they don't, they haven't fully separated out as a separate person, as a separate self-identity. And so they just confuse agency with being able to do everything. They confuse their perception of the world being this fluid thing that's entirely connected to them as this meaning that they can magically alter things like if they put a cape on they can fly if they can um if a cartoon character speaks to them it's alive they just lack this lack that discernment and so this is what comes across in their faith descriptions great let's move on to the stage two in fowler's model which is mythic literal now, this level appears in childhood, and at this stage, we begin to adopt the beliefs and stories prevalent in our community, whether that means our family, religious or secular groups, school, our city, our nation, or a blend of these. And faith at this stage is largely about reciprocity. So a good example of this is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So um, if you're good, if you behave well, if you, you know, Mm, do what is prescribed to you, then you'll be treated well. If not, you'll be punished. And we can see this phase in our tendency to separate good and evil into rigid categories and to view them as being inherent to the cosmos. But it's not just religious good and evil, it's the moral standards of society, our family, our school. It's like someone doesn't live up to those standards, they're evil. And if they do, they're good and they're good people. Fowler, in his research, saw that stage two people often see their their life to be governed by a bank of goodwill. So if things aren't going well, they must have done something wrong. So they start carrying out acts to please to please God. And if things are going well, they see it as a sign that they acted that they acted as they should be. And again, this doesn't have to be God. This can just be doing what's right in our community, at school, in our family, and so on. Here we start to appreciate narrative and stories as a way to express meaning. And we interpret them very literally 
and their meanings are locked into the story themselves. So we're unable to see that the story is a pointer to deeper, greater realities. This means that the stories and the symbols take on a sacred status for us. And the myths and their images associated with these myths are fused with their meaning and greater significance, hence mythic. And so there's a real locking into the ideas of the culture, the ideas of our religious group. These are taken to be absolutely true at all times. They need to be followed. They need to be, if you don't follow them, you're you're bad. If you follow them, you're good. And these these take on like the significance of the world for us. At this stage, we can form logical descriptions of the divine that are have a structure, unlike at stage one. And this brings a sense of coherence and order to our faith life that at stage one isn't present. I'd say that this, even though that this mythic structure gets associated with unpleasant things, as a structure, it's it's something we all go through, whether we identify as being religious or not. Um, and it's been around for thousands of years. It's served a purpose in humanity and it served a purpose in each of our lives. And we need to appreciate that if we're going to integrate it and we're going to understand what faith really is and why it, why it's important. Let's move on to stage three. This is called synthetic conventional. So this becomes available in adolescence, first of all, according to Fowler. But many adults are permanently located here. And actually, it, it's this this structure really gives rise to the kind of religion that most people equate with all religion due to its prevalence. What are the keys to synthetic conventional faith? And we'll talk about why it's called that in a moment. Basically, our faith is more complicated now and it allows us to um, orient ourselves and manage our lives in a complex network of things like friendships, family commitments, work, peers and society. So this is why it first becomes available in adolescence when life gets a bit more complicated and we're, you know, we're going to school, we have friendships, we've got our family to maintain, we've got hobbies, we've got to start thinking about our grades and our career and so on. And at this stage, we're aware that other people are their own people with their own experiences and views on life. This wasn't really available before. Things were just too simplistic then, and we tended to sort of think that um, we just don't have the capacity to step into other people's shoes. And this is a this is absolutely fundamental in psychological development. Is this capacity, and it's not always available to us before a certain age. Here we internalize the values, expectations, and outlooks of our peers, and our identity sort of derives from membership to our group. So it's kind of similar to stage two in that way, except here just slightly different flavors involved. This is why it's called synthetic actually, because it, our faith is really, it's coming from, mm, it's coming from all of the people around us who we're with on a, on a daily basis and who we're exposed to and we sort of mm, pick up the symbols and the meanings and the values and whatnot from them. And this gives us a sense of comfort and well-being, especially in adolescence, for example, when things are really confusing 
<laughs> we don't have a really so- strong sense of identity, we really need to grab onto these things just to, you know, gives us stability, gives us a, a, a sense of identity, one we, that we can share with other people. One of the key properties of this phase is that we can't form our own views through deliberation and evaluation. So it's like, as I said, it's synthetic. It's our faith system, our the reason, the the meanings that we give to life, the, the reasons we do things, It's it comes more from other people than from ourselves. And really, we're sort of a, we're like a sort of mouthpiece for the meanings and values that dominate around us. We're not really coming to these things ourselves. We're sort of just, we're like more of a vessel in that way. Why is it conventional? We've talked about synthetic. What's the conventional part about? Basically, at this stage, we view everyone else as sharing our own faith system. And there's a sense of uniformity. So we look out on the world and it's like, it seems like everyone else follows our faith system. And I think this is because there's sort of an expansion of our identity to include groups, but we don't realize that actually different groups of people have very different faith systems. What Fowler does in his research, he emphasizes what's called the tacit nature of the system, tacit. What this basically means is that though we're aware of having an ideology, of having a a, a faith system, even if we don't call it that, we can't step outside of that. We can't step outside the flow of our lives and understand why our faith system is what it is. And we also can't question our the, the faith system of our surround, the values, the ideas, the, the, the norms of our surround, and we can't understand their 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 root and isn't this something that we all do as humans it's like whenever we become identified with a group or a a cause or a you know whatever it is we we sort of become blind to (laughs) to um to everything else that is not that people that don't do things the same way as we do and it's this structure, knowing about the structure tells you why. It's because it's actually a, a fundamental part of our growth as human beings. And it just sort of lives on inside us, I think. And uh, yeah, connecting with that in yourself is a really good way just to understand what this synthetic convention, conventional faith is. So now let's break the shackles of conventionality and dive into the next stages of faith. So this is. This stage, stage four, is the end point of the individuation process. So this is when we sort of, after this, we've got a fully formed identity in the sense of, um, well, in the sense that we're going to talk about here, but in the terms of becoming a person, of, of finding ourselves, quote unquote, this is the end point of that journey. And after that, it's sort of a, a journey backwards, forwards, but backwards at the same time, you might say. This tends to, stage four is called individuative reflective, and it tends to come online in young adulthood when we emotionally or physically leave home. We cast aside our inherited outlook, our synthetic conventional faith, and we start taking seriously the effects of our life choices. We've basically got enough time and space away from our familiar surround to start questioning things, to start questioning where it comes from. 
and why we why we picked up and the effect that it has on us. Just to say though that this distancing from home it doesn't really guarantee anything. You can still be level three, be at level three and and um, have moved away from home and whatnot. It's just that Fowler saw this as one of the main triggers for this stage coming on. What are the key features of stage four? So our sense of authority now goes inside. It's no longer what's around us and the messages we the messages we pick up from our surround. It's actually something that we um, that we create, and our identity expands beyond our roles and our significant others and our immediate obligations, and it becomes more self-reflective. It's not tacit anymore. We deliberately we deliberate and analyze things, and then after that we add new elements to our faith system. It's not we're not just sponging. We're not just a sponge for everything around us. It's not synthetic either. So we actually have what Fowler calls an executive evil, an executive ego, and what this basically means is that we're able to pass meanings and concepts through an internal filter before we accept them. And we're still attuned to others' beliefs and expectations. We're not completely an island here, but we've got an element of the island now. There's also a demythologization of symbols. What this basically means is that we strip away the power of the symbol um, and we see that they have a background, that they're not, um, they, they don't represent the ultimate meaning of things. And we start forcing them to conform to certain meanings and to to make sense, to have like a, a, a logical explanation behind them. There's a bit of a disenchantment here for that reason. But the beauty of this treatment of symbols is that it starts opening us up to the, their true mystical meaning rather than our basic interpretations of them. And um, the same goes with stories. Like we no longer literally believe that Noah had an ark, but we can maybe see that there's something metaphorical there. Well, not at stage four we can't, but later stages we can. And you can think of stage four as the bridge between that simplistic interpretation of symbols and um, a more metaphorical and deeper consideration of what they really mean. One of the limitations that Fowler highlights is that we're still not really aware of our own unconscious factors, aware of the full um, the full reasons behind our faith and why we uphold it and where it comes from. This really comes online at stage five. And so there can be too much emphasis on logic and making things make sense and making it um, fit within our preconceived ideas and not really questioning those preconceived ideas in our system of faith. It's more just, yeah, there's not really an understanding of these and more unconscious factors yet. Speaking of stage five, let's have a look at stage five now. Fowler noticed that this is very rare before midlife. So, and he actually, the, the youngest person that he found to be at this level was in their late 20s. So if you're looking at these stages, um, you might 
you might be starting to move into we might be starting to move into territory that you don't really recognize in yourself and so it's just it shows you what might be next for you and um also might not in a neurotic way but just maybe as like a little experiment just to see if you can play around in stage five or and beyond and just see try and feel into it try and understand what they mean on the other hand you might be looking at us and saying this is exactly who I am and this describes me and if that it gives you that level of clarity that's really good there's two core features present in all level five subjects and this was like two things that um two necessary factors for people to move into stage five one was sustained responsibility for the well-being of other people so things like parenthood um caring for other people, working in medicine, psychology, caring for a parent and so on. And the experience, number two, the experience of living with irreversible moral decisions. So you can kind of see why, based on these two factors, why they are necessary for moving into stage five and why the youngest person at Fowler found at the time was in their late 20s. Let's look at understanding conjunctive faith. And I think, first of all, we should define conjunctive because it's really not a word that we use often. <laughs> at least I don't. I looked this up in Collins Dictionary and it means joining and connective. Conjunction, we well, you know the word conjunction means to join. Well, in language, it means um, a word that, of, that joins two separate sentences together, two parts of a sentence. So... It means joining and connective, and you can see this in stage five. What stage five does is that we start moving beyond this sort of explicit, sharply defined system of stage four. And we realize that truth is much more multifaceted and complex than any one theory or system or doctrine or perspective can encapsulate. And we're ready to broaden our spiritual horizons, as it were, and start to interact with and incorporate the truths of other systems from all periods of time, even ancient systems, modern systems, try and see that they're all, they all have their own truth and they all say something important. We also become attuned to the unconscious factors that have shaped and warped our perspective. So... Yeah, a real deepening of this. Stage four has it a little bit when it steps outside the surround. It can see um, the way they've uh, they've just absorbed the faith, uh, their faith from their surround with no real filter. But this goes to another level at stage five. What we do here is to compensate for this. Um, sort of naivety that we we realize in ourselves, we start to relinquish our control to the power of texts, practices and truths while retaining our ability to be critical and being able to sort of discern, we realize the distortion of those capacities. There's also a new relationship to symbols. So after demythologizing <laughs> the symbols from the previous at the previous level, we breathe new life into them here. We give them the initiative we start to realize that they have a depth uh, well beyond what we might have ever thought before conjunctive faith. Stage five is also keenly attuned to injustice and division, 
unlike any of the prior levels. However, passivity and complacency complacency is common. So it's like we're caught between different life demands here. We're not really fully dedicating ourselves to injustice and division and fighting for improvement to the world. It's we're aware of it and we moan about it and we preach about it and we say, oh, this is terrible, this, this and that. But it's not like the, it's not the action of Martin Luther King or Gandhi or these people. It's more just the moaning and the blaming and the whining, complaining. That's what it is. Let's move into stage six now. And as I said, this is the end point of Fowler's sequence. And it's the one he set as the standard for faith development. Stage six is called universalizing faith. And very few people are found here. Fowler describes this as a fearless, radical enactment of universal principles of morality, justice, and faith. And this is backed by a meaning system that sees the divine in absolutely all manifestations of life. And perhaps because they're convenient examples, perhaps just because few common people reach this phase, Fowler gives us Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, and Gandhi as people examples of people embodying this level. Here we have a strong sense of universal justice that cuts through national and racial boundaries. We have a vision of heaven on earth that extends to all humans regardless of race, colour, sex or creed. And crucially, while at stage five we have sort of visions and imaginations of this sort, we actually begin to enact it now. We begin to do things that shake things up and force change and revolution. And obviously, people like Mother Teresa and Gandhi, this is a very high level. These are famous historical figures. You don't need to be a famous historical figure to do things that change the status quo. But this, you know, the spirit of these people, their character, this gives you an idea of what stage six is about. Here we perceive the ultimate meaning So this is where we go beyond, in my mind, we go beyond relative meaning. We go beyond our personal interpretations of what the divine is, what life is, what faith is. We actually start to connect with the ultimate meaning, seeing it in absolutely everything. And remember that these are normative, meaning it implies a standard. And to my, in my mind, This gives us the ultimate standard of what we believe the ultimate ultimate nature of things, the ultimate environment, as Fowler would call it, what that really is beyond all of our relative systems of meaning, beyond our vague ideas of it, beyond our stories about it, beyond our, our skepticism and our logic, beyond our stage five, diving in and out of different systems while not really integrating them all. This stage six gives us what it really is, and it's a sense of divinity that is present in absolutely everything. This is called, and this is also the the same God, the same being that exists in religious literature throughout time, throughout the world, across the world, east and west, the ground of all being, um, God, is a non-partisan, non-religious God, a non-partisan, non-religious being 
that pervades absolutely everything. John Gebser says it shines through everything. And so while we're talking about all these relative structures, what we can realize is that stage six, the descriptions of stage six, point us to that ultimate meaning. So hope that this description of the stages of faith was really illuminating for you. Do remember to look for these in yourself, look for these in other people, and try to integrate all the previous stages and try to feel into the later ones. And of course, do remember to subscribe to me on YouTube and to follow me on your favourite podcast platform to stay in touch with what I'm doing. I'll see you next time.